Welcome to Mindfully Healing, a mental health podcast. I'm your host, Micheline Malouf, a trauma-informed and trained therapist. And I'm Nadia Desi, a registered social worker and psychotherapist. We are here to guide you through the connection between your mind and body to help you develop a deeper understanding of yourself. Join us on each episode as we navigate each topic by posing questions to our mind and then having deep conversations with each other, ourselves, and special guests to help us come full circle and answer each question. This season, we discuss trauma, trauma responses, attachment, and relationships. In each episode, we provide you with resources and tools to begin to heal your inner child, set boundaries, and help you along your journey of healing. Dear Mind, I'm having these really scary thoughts. Why do I have them? And do they make me a bad person? Today, we have the amazing Allegra Castens on. She is your one-stop shop for everything OCD. She has an amazing channel on Instagram and on TikTok now. I have learned so much from her. So we are so excited to have you on. Thank you, Allegra, for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm so stoked. Yeah, so we have some like really good questions for you. We wanted to talk about OCD because a lot of people struggle with it, not knowing that they're struggling with OCD. There's a lot of taboo topics, which is what really specifically we want to target on our podcast today. But let's start with the basic. Let's start with what is OCD? OCD is a mental health condition and it's a disorder. And the reason that I preface and I start it out with that is because a lot of the times people think that OCD is like a cute little personality quirk, or it is something like you love to clean or you love to organize. And it's a disorder. It's a debilitating disorder that a person experiences. And ultimately it's comprised of a couple of different components. The first being obsessions. Now an obsession is not what we typically hear in society. And I'm guilty of saying this, so I'm not shaming anyone who says it, but We'll say things like I'm obsessed with Dom Gabriel. And we think that it's <laughs> like I know. That, um, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> no, so, we're gonna leave so that like, in. You say so you say essentially like I'm obsessed with something that you really like. That is not an obsession. Psychologically speaking, an obsession is a repetitive intrusive thought that is unwanted. You're thinking about something that you do not want to be thinking about. So with OCD, an obsession is a repetitive, unwanted, intrusive thought, image, urge that is distressing to the person. You get the thought over and over and over again, and it's a really scary thought. You don't enjoy thinking it. And a compulsion is a physical or mental act. It's so important to highlight the mental piece of it because a lot of clinicians don't understand that compulsions can be mental. So it's a physical or mental act that the person with OCD feels the urge to carry out. They don't want to. It's not, I love washing my hands, so I'm going to do this. It's, I feel the urge to do this thing in response to the obsession, to either neutralize the obsession, to solve the obsession, to alleviate anxiety, discomfort, and any other emotions associated with it, to prevent something bad from happening. And obsessions and compulsions take up at least an hour of a person's day. They impair a person's functioning. It's not just I have an odd, unwanted thought, because even people without OCD have intrusive thoughts. It's these repetitive obsessions and these compulsions that I feel the urge to perform 
take up a large portion of my day and they are impacting the way that I function. And the last thing I'm going to add is that OCD is an ego dystonic disorder. So what that means is the, the repetitive thoughts that you're experiencing, the images, the urges, they are opposite to a person's values, beliefs, and self-concept. You do not enjoy the thoughts and you do not enjoy the compulsions. So there's a lot of anxiety going on with somebody that has so OCD. Much. A lot of anxiety about what could go wrong, what will happen. So there's a lot of what if thoughts, like if I, I need to do this to alleviate the compulsion and what you said about the mental compulsions, it's not necessarily some, some of the compulsions are not visible. So it could be like mental checking, reviewing, um, exactly. can you give an example of like a common one that you would see a lot in your practice and, and how that shows up clinically? Of course. And it's really important too, to understand the difference between intrusive thoughts and mental compulsions. And the way I break it down is the intrusive thought happens to you. You're not going to be able to stop it. And the more that you try to stop it, the more that you're going to have that thought, right? It's like telling someone, don't think about a pink elephant and all they start thinking about is the pink elephant. So the intrusive thought happens to you where the mental compulsion is an active choice. Just like someone is choosing to go to the sink and wash their hands compulsively seven times, you are choosing to actively engage a thought process in response to your obsession. So an example could be like, I'll jump right in with a taboo obsession. A lot of people with OCD have very unfounded fears. Like what if I'm a pedophile? That thought continuously pops into their mind, despite the fact that it terrifies them. They love kids and they're not sexually attracted to children common mental compulsion with that is rumination. So trying to solve the obsession through thought, perseverating on it. Why am I having this thought? What does it mean about me? Well, could it be true because I'm having this thought or it could look like mental checking of emotions. When I'm around children, do I feel something internally that I shouldn't? So we mm -hmm. have the obsession that what if, but then the person is actively engaging with it compulsively in their mind. Can avoidance also be a form of a compulsion. So I yes. am having these intrusive thoughts about children and I love children, but I don't love them in that way. So I'm going to avoid children altogether because I scare myself. Yes, absolutely. And that's what a lot of people don't realize. They think if I just avoid, then I am going to be okay. If I avoid, I'm not going to have these thoughts anymore. I'm not going to be anxious, but avoidance sends the wrong message to the brain. Avoidance tells the brain the thing that I'm avoiding is dangerous. It's scary. And we need to be on the lookout for it. So it, it really serves the opposite of its intended effect. And when you're avoiding, you're probably more likely to feel anxiety when you interact with the thing that you are avoiding. It is not the solution. It signals to your brain that the obsessions are important, valid, and should be attended to when they are not. I know you mentioned contamination a couple of times of like wanting to wash your hands or feeling like you need to be clean. Do you mind exploring different subtypes of OCD for our listeners to see if they can relate to anything? Most definitely. So I talk about, especially when I'm talking about like mental compulsions versus physical, obviously compulsive hand washing and sanitization is the most well-known OCD compulsion, but that's actually a very, very small sliver of the wide range of compulsions. And contamination fears are a really, really, really small sliver of obsessional themes. People with OCD can obsess about anything, but we have kind of divided different obsessional themes. Um, we've created nicknames for them, per se. It's all OCD at the end of the day. You weren't diagnosed with relationship OCD or sexual orientation OCD, but it's a nickname for the symptoms that you are experiencing. So sexual obsessions, 
often look like repetitive, unwanted, intrusive sexual thoughts about inappropriate subjects, kids, animals, family members, and the person typically has a fear associated with those thoughts. What if I'm into bestiality because I keep having this thought about having sex with my dog? What if I am actually attracted to children and I've been lying to myself my whole life? What if I want to fuck my dad is a really big one. What if I'm, you know, secretly attracted to my dad and now I'm lying to my husband and then we kind of get relationship OCD wrapped up in that and the themes can intertwine. We have relationship obsessions, think about obsessions surrounding the rightness of one's relationship or partner, obsessions surrounding one's sexual orientation. So that could be, I've known that I'm gay my entire life. I've been married to a woman and all of a sudden I start envisioning penises all day. And now I'm questioning if I'm in the wrong relationship and I should be with a man because I can't stop thinking about penises, even though I don't even enjoy penises. We have existential obsessions. We have religious obsessions. We have violent obsessions. I mean, it runs the gamut. And this isn't just a passing thought or a passing fear. This fear becomes all-consuming for the person with OCD. And part of that is because the brain is malfunctioning. It's sending out these false alarm danger signals with those thoughts when danger isn't actually present. The the most taboo subjects, like you mentioned, some of the, the pedophilic OCD. I would definitely say POCD is like the most stigmatized. I do think that there are certain themes that naturally are more shameful and are more stigmatizing. That just is a thing. I'm not saying that if you have contamination obsessions that your OCD isn't difficult. It absolutely is, but it's a lot easier to walk into a therapist's office and say, hey, I've been struggling with these fears about like touching this doorknob and getting HIV than it is to say, hi, I can't stop envisioning like me fingering my newborn baby. Like Mm -hmm. it feels a lot scarier and more shameful to do that. And the consequences seem a lot bigger, right? Because if they don't know that this is OCD, are they going to report me or arrest me? So we see pedophile obsessions. What if I'm a pedophile? We see incest obsessions. What if I'm attracted to family members? Violent and harm obsessions are really big. What if I desire killing other people? What if I snap and harm someone? Postpartum obsessions. And that could really be an obsession about harm befalling your baby. So it could be like, what if my baby has SIDS? I don't know the appropriate, like not contracts, but gets SIDS and dies in its sleep. But the more taboo ones are like sexual and violent thoughts that new moms can have about their babies. What if I throw my baby down the stairs? What if I touch my baby inappropriately while changing their diaper? And again, this is not just a passing thought. This is all consuming. And then it leads to new moms compulsively avoiding being around their children, making the babysitter or the nanny or the other parent do the diaper changes, making the other parent carry them down the stairs. So with somebody who does experience taboo themes, how would they know the difference between reality and themes and OCD? I like to describe it as, well, first and foremost, like I said earlier, OCD is ego dystonic. So it's opposite to a person's values, self-concepts and beliefs. So the person knows I do not enjoy this. And that's what makes it so damn difficult. It's like, I keep having this thought pop in and it feels so real. My body is going into fight, flight, or freeze, despite the fact that I don't enjoy this, but I know that I don't like this. Like there is some kind of knowing. Now we know that OCD is a doubting disorder. So people tend to doubt what they know. 
That's where a lot of the what ifing comes in. Wait, I know that I'm not attracted to children, but what if? What if it changed overnight? What if I'm lying to myself? What if I snap and then do this thing even though I don't want to? So we see all of that what ifing. Reasonable doubt happens when we have evidence in the here and now to actually doubt something. What we're dealing with with OCD a lot of the time is obsessive doubt. There is no evidence in the here and now to tell a person that they would actually be attracted to children at all. Like they're having scary thoughts about it. They might feel something down there, which is very common if we have a sexual thought of any kind, but they will tell you, I do not desire harming a children, harming a child. Yeah. I want to yes. follow up to that because, uh, the physiological response that you just mentioned is very important. Oh, so important. A lot of people with, you know, these types of sexual thoughts will have, I would say most people will have some sort of response physiological, physiologically, the groinal response. The groinal baby. And we talk about that, what it is, what happens and what it means. I'm like smirking right now and I shouldn't be. (laughs) Let's talk about the groinal. Um, It's... (laughs) This is what I do every day. And I kind of love it because it's so important. Um, So Emily Nagelski is like a sex educator and researcher, and she talks a lot about arousal non-concordance. And essentially what arousal non-concordance is, is that you can feel something in your genitals without actually desiring it. And what tends to happen is your body responds to what it learns is sexually relevant, but something being sexually relevant doesn't actually mean that you desire it. Like your brain and your body are just responding to the word sex or to something associated with sex, but that doesn't mean that it lines up with your values. So a lot of the time people with OCD will have a sexual thought about their dad, let's say. Let's say it's an image because people will get images where even sometimes like intrusive mental movies where you can actually see yourself in your mind, like having sex with your dad. And they feel something down there and then they falsely interpret that as a signal that they must enjoy this, that they must desire it. But really what's happening is like, of course you're feeling something down there because your body has learned to respond to what is sexual, whether you like it or not. And your body is not checking in with your value system. It's not saying, hey, do you enjoy this sexual thought about your dad? It's sex. I'm going to feel something. And the way Emily describes it is kind of like Pavlov and Pavlov's dogs, where eventually the dog starts salivating to the bell. The dog doesn't want to eat the fucking bell. It's just learned to salivate with the bell, right? Like we've learned to have a bodily response to a sexual thought. And I'm going to take it one step further because obviously I'm going to go here. Something also could feel good without you desiring it, right? So if you put peanut butter, sorry, I'm definitely going here, on your vagina and your dog licks it, like maybe it does fucking feel good because someone's licking your vagina. That doesn't mean you like that. Mm-hmm. You, I would be horrified at my dog licking my vagina. Would I feel something if it happened? Probably. So feeling something down there is not indicative of you enjoying it. I love that you say say that because aside from OCD, a lot of sexual abuse survivors sometimes will say that it felt mm. good. So they felt like they deserved it or that's exactly. like a problem because they felt good. And this kind of just goes to show again that this is another area where your body is just responding to what you said, the conditioned response to this thing right. is necessarily enjoyable. Right. And it does happen a lot with assault survivors where mm-hmm. you don't enjoy the experience whatsoever. It's traumatizing to you, but your body is responding. Like you might orgasm or it might feel good. And that still does not mean that you enjoyed and wanted it. 
it's so powerful. And I'm, I'm glad I know you're like, I'm, I'm going there. There's like that, but I don't want us to ourselves here because I think no. so people suffer in silence mm-hmm. with this. And, and I guess I want to talk about that. Like what is happening internally for somebody who is struggling with this, who doesn't have this information? What are the emotional um, consequences of struggling with OCD, specifically one of these uh, taboo topics? Well, I can give you my own personal experience. Like when this first started happening to me at 19, I mean, it was the most traumatizing and the scariest experience of my life. And I, it was, I think a little bit over a year before I even had a name for what I was experiencing. And it just feels like the most, I'm trying to think of the right word. It, it's the most disorienting experience because I knew I don't like these thoughts and it was literally like 24 fucking seven in my brain, like sexually molest, fuck that kid, sex with children. Like that thought just coming over and over and over. I would get images in my mind of like naked babies and it feels so fucking shameful. Like I was disgusted by my brain. I was disgusted with myself because I thought that I was having these thoughts for a reason. I felt like I was so bad, like something was wildly wrong with me. But then you feel really stuck between a rock and a hard place because I was never going to go open up to someone and tell them, hi, this is what I'm experiencing. I didn't want them to think that I was a sexual predator because I knew that I wasn't. So people typically get stuck in shame and they also fear that they're going to be reported. And I felt that as well. If I open up to a therapist about this, they're going to call the fucking police on me. Right. And I can't, I'm not going to tell my parents that I'm having sexual thoughts about them because that's fucking weird. And now I'm having them about my dog. And like, there's just so much shame, so much trauma. It's so anxiety inducing. Like the way that I describe it to people is like the scariest thought that you could ever think and how much like cortisol and whatever runs through your body. And then imagine that just happening like 4,000 times a day. It's the most terrifying experience. It sounds very isolating. Oh, it's so isolating because you can't tell other people what's going on with you. And you also don't have the language. I didn't know how to communicate to people that this is what was happening because I didn't know what was happening. I couldn't say I'm having intrusive thoughts. I didn't even know what intrusive thought was. The only thing that I said was like, I feel anxious or I feel depressed, but I didn't understand why this was happening to me. And I wasn't going to go to someone and say, I'm having sexual thoughts about children, dogs, and my family members, because I didn't think of it as like, I'm having a sexual thought that I'm enjoy enjoying. It was like, this thing is happening in my brain, but I don't know how to describe it. What beliefs did you make about yourself for having- Oh, I thought I was like the most disgusting person. I thought I was, and it's, it's like, it's, you have two minds because I knew like, I hate these things that like, I'm so terrified and I'm about to die by suicide because I can't stop these thoughts. So there was no part of me that was like, I enjoy this. Like I was deeply frightened by my own brain, but then because you're the one having the thoughts, you do feel disgusting. You feel like there's something really wrong with you because how could my brain do this to me? And if I'm having these thoughts, there must be some inkling of truth or like, like something is happening that is within me that is making this happen. And I am gross. I am dangerous. I am problematic, even though I wasn't. I think like the majority of OCD patients I've worked with always use the same word of, I feel disgusting. Yeah. And it's It's just vile. 
Yeah. It's a really vile experience and it's, it's awful. Like no one wants to have repetitive images of like your dad naked all day long. Like it is pretty fucking vile. And even when you know, like I knew that I wasn't that person, even if you know that and you're not doubting your identity, it's still a really fucking awful experience. Like nobody wants that happening all day long. You mentioned you almost died by suicide. And I'm sure that so many people feel the same way. I'm wondering if you know the statistics about Mm -hmm. maybe how many people attempt or die by suicide because of OCD. Yes. So 25% of people with OCD have attempted suicide. This doesn't include people who have OCD, but don't know it yet. So that 25% is people who have been diagnosed with OCD, but we're also missing the thousands and hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions of people who have OCD, but don't have a name for it because they think that OCD is a love of organization or they only associate it with contamination obsession. So 25% of people diagnosed have attempted suicide. That is a huge, huge number. Yeah, it's massive. How did you finally go about seeking help after, you know, feeling that way, what, what was it that said, okay, I have to tell someone and I have to get help. I attempted a couple of times. Like I went to the doctor, I think like a few months into having the thoughts and I like tried so hard on the way over. I kept saying to myself, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell this doctor. And I got there and obviously I just like sobbed hysterically and said I was depressed. Um, and then it was a little bit over, it was probably like 14 or 15 months into having these thoughts. I was super high functioning. So I like worked in the PR industry in LA. I was 20 years old at this point, but I would like, I was still visibly suffering. Like I would cry in my car at work. I would cry in like the bathroom at work. And one of my colleagues saw me and she was like, I've seen you cry too many times. She grabbed my hand. She pulled me into the office and she called her brother's therapist right there. She was like, you need to see a therapist. And so her brother's therapist recommended a therapist who was in his suite and I still didn't even really know what therapy was like I was like 20 years old I'd never heard of therapy growing up nobody in my family went to therapy and at that point like it was kind of like I'm about to die or I'm gonna go tell this person these thoughts so like I just was at my like the end of my rope and so I agreed to see the therapist and that was the first time that I opened up about like having these really scary thoughts and I don't know that I would have if Annie, my colleague, hadn't like pushed me to do so. That shows the importance of like speaking up and like really mm-hmm. connecting with someone when you see that they're struggling because yeah, you don't know where you would have been. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like I would not, I don't think I would have made that decision myself. You were talking earlier about um, like the what if thoughts that mm-hmm. go on in your mind. And I want to touch back on that because I want to talk about the what if I did something mm. and don't remember it, like that lack of trust. So the falsification yeah. of me- the false memories that might show mm-hmm. up, um, is that common with OCD? It's super common and it happens for a couple of reasons. I mean, ultimately, if we're talking about a false memory, we're really just talking about a thought, right? Like, again, it's still a thought in a person's mind and it's just that they doubt whether or not it has happened. So it's still a thought. 
But what tends to happen with OCD is like a massive compulsion is mental review. So you're mentally reviewing the past. You're mentally reviewing memories and experiences and interactions with people. And that's what often leads to these quote unquote false memories. Because when you're revisiting something that happened in the past over and over and over in your mind, the memory becomes distorted and you start to remember things that didn't actually happen. So a lot of the times my clients will come in and they'll say, I've gone over this so many times that I actually believe that I stabbed my child and I just got away with it. Or I actually believe that I molested that child when I was babysitting, even though there is zero evidence of it, even though they would never want to do that. They've gone over it so much in their mind that it feels like it has happened. Or they have a really strong like visual thought about it and therefore believe that this thing could have happened despite there being no evidence. With false memories, aside from mental review, I find a big compulsion that people use to get through that is reassurance seeking. Maybe not so much with taboo, but often with other OCD subtypes. Can you explain? Oh, and with taboo as well, for sure. From their therapist or from somebody they maybe feel more comfortable opening up with. Can you explain why reassurance with OCD is harmful instead of helpful? Absolutely. So what tends to happen with OCD is like, it's very difficult for the OCD brain to connect to logic. It's not that logic doesn't exist, but it's hard for the brain to connect to that, especially when the person's brain is stuck in that fear response. Like we know when you're in that like fight, flight, or freeze, it's hard to think rationally. You're thinking about survival. And with OCD, like the compulsion never tends to satiate. If someone could just say to you with OCD, like, of course you're not this person and you buy into it, like you wouldn't have OCD. The OCD brain always wants to come back with a, but what if this, but what if that, but what if X, Y, and Z? And that reassurance that you're offered reinforces the obsession. It tells your brain this obsession and this thought is important when it's actually not. So it reinforces the obsession. It reinforces that the only way to manage obsessions is to ask for that reassurance. And that's where that reassurance seeking tends to be repetitive. And it just doesn't satiate. Again, it doesn't mean that logic doesn't exist. There are ways of looking at our thought processes and our reasoning, and there's metacognitive work that can be done to show a person why their thought processes are not super rational, but just going, of course not, or I'm not that person over and over again, like your brain's not going to buy it. OCD is not going to buy it. To kind of move into that, like treatment for OCD, I want to start with the question of let's say some of our listeners are really struggling with some of these really scary, intrusive thoughts, Mm -hmm. and they're not sure how to come out to their therapist about them, or they're not sure what to say or how to say it. Because sometimes, like, even if you're not having these scary, intrusive thoughts, it can be really scary. You don't know this person, maybe it's a new therapist. So it's scary to come out and say, I'm having intrusive thoughts about my dog, like having sex with my dog, you know, so how can they start that conversation with their therapist? Number one is I like to, like, I always want people to feel safe and to have that like relationship with their therapist. If it's a new therapist that you're going into, I would say like, 
and again, everybody has intrusive thoughts occasionally. So you don't have to have OCD to have intrusive thoughts. But if you're getting them like repetitively and you're performing compulsions and you suspect that you have OCD, I often say try to find an OCD specialist near you where you already know that they're going to get it. And that's helpful for a few reasons. Number one is they're not going to be shocked by anything you say. Number two, they're going to know effective treatment. So trying to find an OCD specialist, if you don't know if you're seeing an OCD specialist or not, I'm a really big fan of bringing in resources to doctors or psychiatrists or therapists. Like, can you send them an article about intrusive thoughts and say, like, I kind of had this experience. Can we talk about this in therapy? Or like, I keep having these really scary thoughts that I don't align with, but they just keep coming in. There are many ways to do it, but ultimately make sure that you trust your therapist to a certain degree. I know that's not always possible because sometimes we're just like desperate for help and we like word vomit, but an OCD specialist should really have no questions about this. I love the idea of finding resources online yes. and sending them to your therapist and being like, I'm struggling with this because then if you have that fear that it's just me, now you have that proof right in front of you. It's not just you. And then right. if they're not a specialist in it, at least they can look at what's going on and, and help guide you to the right person. I love that in therapy. And I also love that with family members. Sometimes people will say, how do I tell my partner? Or how do I tell my mom that this is what I'm dealing with? And I love saying like provide resources from credible sources. I once did it with someone that I was dating. It probably wasn't a great way to do it, but I literally sent him an article I wrote. And it's like, you're going to read this. And then you're going to call me back an hour later and we're going to talk about it. And he was like, totally fucking fine. He's like, oh, I've, I feel like had thoughts like that too. Like I don't have OCD, but like I thought a thought like that. It's just like the weird brain or whatever. But like me sending him that helped me open up in that way. Hmm. That's actually a very smart resource for somebody you're dating. I have worked with patients with OCD being really afraid to enter a relationship, especially ones that haven't been in relationships before of like, how, how is this going to work? How are they going to understand me? Right. So I, good. Are there like, do you think that OCD could, or even taboo OCD impact relationships? No, certainly. Um, in so many different ways. What comes to mind, especially with taboo obsessions is when the obsessions actually attack people that we love, when it's our newborn baby and we don't want to be around our baby because we want to make absolute sure that our baby is safe. And now that new relationship with our baby, you know, is different than we expected. We didn't get the motherhood experience that we wanted. If you were having relationship obsessions about your partner that might impact your relationship, sexual orientation obsessions, where you feel like you're lying to your partner. Um, there are so many ways that uh, like obsessions can attack a person or a relationship, can impact relationships. And then also when OCD symptoms are really loud in a relationship, obviously it's not the person with OCD's fault, but it could impact the relationship. If you're asking your partner for reassurance all day long, if you're avoiding sexual intimacy because you're so afraid of your thoughts. Like these things naturally do impact relationships. To talk about treatment, what does treatment look like? What's the best treatment for OCD? And what should we look for when looking for a therapist? So as of now, like there is a treatment called exposure and response prevention that is like the frontline treatment for OCD. It does not mean it is the only thing that is used to treat OCD. It does not mean that it's going to work for everyone. And I like to say this because there's nuance, but in terms of like what's researched and evidence-based, 
exposure and response prevention. It entails gradually exposing yourself to feared stimuli and simultaneously practicing response prevention, cutting out compulsive rituals. So that might look like changing your baby's diaper as the exposure and cutting out any kind of mental review afterwards. You're not gonna review what you just did with your baby while you change the diaper. So exposure and response prevention is the front line, but there are other therapies that can be effective as well. Metacognitive therapy that is really like thinking about the way that we're thinking, something called inference-based cognitive behavioral therapy is newer, but some of the research shows can be effective. I love mindfulness skills training. That honestly was probably the thing that helped me most in my own recovery and a little bit of cognitive work as well. I love that. Yeah, definitely. It's not just like only ERP. And I think that sometimes we all get black and white as clinicians to a certain extent and say like, this is the treatment for this, but it is definitely more nuanced and ERP is not going to work for some, like for everyone in the same way that EMDR might not work for everyone, but ERP tends to work a lot of the time for people with OCD. Right. And if you're listening and you haven't been to a therapist and you're considering it, ERP doesn't have to be as scary as it sounds. Like it can start so, so Mm -hmm. small until you're able to work up. And when I mean so small, I don't want to invalidate because even small is really scary, but it can be like visualization activities. It can be like watching something on TV and then building up to, you know, your number 10 of what makes you really, really anxious. But you're definitely. And what I like to say about exposure therapy is it's often things that people are doing in everyday life anyways, right? So like changing your baby's diaper, another mom without OCD just does that without thinking about it. If you have a hit and run obsessions, driving the car, like that is an exposure, but people drive all day long. If you're watching the Jeffrey Epstein documentary or the, uh, let's say, I don't know who that killer is, whatever, there's so many killers on Netflix, like people watch these things, right? Like there are some things that we do as exposures that maybe the typical person wouldn't, but a lot of the time it's like things that other people are doing too in life. They just aren't afraid of it. Afraid of it. And you like to pair that typically with mindfulness. I love mindfulness. Mindfulness is like my, I can't think of what I want to say here. Mindfulness is my, my everything. I love it. Why do you think it's beneficial for somebody who is experiencing OCD? For a couple of different reasons. First and foremost, before I even get into exposure and response prevention with clients, I want to make sure that they have tools to manage the unwanted thoughts, to manage the anxiety, to manage intrusive images. Like we've got to have those skills or the exposure and response prevention is not going to be effective. And we just need to have mindfulness skills when living with OCD because we can't be judging our thoughts all day long. We don't want to be jumping into mental compulsions all day long and mindfulness can create that awareness of mental compulsions. But ultimately, I want my clients to get to a place of being a non-judgmental spectator of their thoughts and their images. And that's where mindfulness comes into play is I notice I'm having this thought, I'm coming back to the now instead of resisting and instead of going, this is a fucking terrible, disgusting thought. Why am I having that? that makes the thought worse. I love acceptance and commitment therapy for this because mm-hmm. it's so mindfulness-based and the metaphor. Yes. And I know, because I'm a, I love your work on Instagram and I know that you've created a metaphor, the B metaphor. And I was wondering I if you're open to sharing that with, with our audience. Absolutely. So 
When I talk about acceptance with clients, and I love using that word, I know that it can scare people with OCD. Are you telling me to accept that these things are true? No, I'm talking about accepting the presence of thoughts and feelings. It doesn't mean that you like them or that you want them to be there, but we're allowing them to exist. So the way that I describe it to them, if we're looking at acceptance in practice, it's like having a bee on your shoulder. I hate bees. They fucking terrify me. Like they're gross. They're, they sting you and whatever. And I tend to like flee whenever there's a bee on me. It has not always worked in my favor because then it stings me. So let's pretend that there is a bee on your shoulder. Okay. I don't like this fucking bee. I don't want this bee to be here, but if the bee is on my shoulder, I'm going to allow it to exist without judgment. That ultimately is what acceptance is about. I am going to move about my day. This bee can be here. This unwanted thought, this feeling of anxiety can coexist with me. I'm not fighting with it. So I'm not pushing the bee off of my shoulder because that kind of resistance exacerbates those thoughts and feelings. We know that when we're fighting with our anxiety, we get more anxious. We know that if we tell our brain stop or try to hold up a red stop sign, we're going to have more of those intrusive thoughts. So we're not fighting with it, but we're also not ruminating. We're not performing compulsions. We're not staring at the bee all day long, trying to figure out why it's there, when it's going to go away. We're simply allowing it to exist if it must but we're redirecting our attention to what is helpful. And naturally the bee will have room to come and go. I love that metaphor so, so much. And I love that you have a tattoo of it that you do on your, on your shoulder, which I think is powerful. And I know a lot of people, did they start getting tattoos of it? Yeah. It's kind of like iconic. I'm like, Oh my God. So many people have like bee tattoos. It's wild. Because of you, because, because they that message and that metaphor so strongly that they were like, this is my reminder. And I think that is so powerful. It's kind of awesome. It is extremely awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Not just kind of awesome. It's extremely (laughs) awesome. And I want to highlight something that you said about resistance. Mm -hmm. Um, because a lot of traditional forms of, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, like thought stopping, replacing, holding up a red stop sign, snapping a rubber band on your hand. There's still a lot of misinformation out there about how Mm -hmm. to handle those intrusive thoughts. I see it on social media all the time from, Oh, it annoys me so much. Yeah. From pretty large creators. And like, it's really, that's just going to create that resistance. Can you speak more to that? Why is thought stopping, replacing and snapping a rubber band or holding up a red stop sign to that thought uh, counterproductive? So research has shown us that thought suppression doesn't work. There's a study by Daniel Wegner, and it's one of the like ironic processes of thinking. And essentially what he did is he had a large group of people and he divided it into two different groups. And he said, For five minutes, the first group is only going to think about a white bear. That's all I want you to think about for five minutes. Ring the bell every single time you have a thought about a white bear. Then he said to the second group, you are not allowed to think about a white bear. Think about anything else that you want, but do not think about a white bear. And ring this bell every single time you have a thought about a white bear. Obviously, the group that was told not to think about this had that thought more. So thought suppression doesn't work. When we tell our brains stop, when we resist, when we say, I can't have this thought, we are more likely to have an increase in that very thought that we were trying to get rid of. Something like snapping a rubber band is going to do nothing for you, but cause pain. It literally harms your wrist. It's not telling your brain to not have the thought like some therapists think. It's just reinforcing that this thought is dangerous and bad and you get more of it. We don't want to practice thought stopping that doesn't work. And this goes for you, even if you don't have OCD. The work is to 
practice coexistence to mindfully observe the thought and to let it exist. We do not need to engage with it and we don't need to fight with it. It can be there and we can redirect our attention to something else. So what can people expect in an ERP session? Let's say with these very taboo subjects like pedophilic OCD or incest Mm -hmm. OCD, how does ERP work in session with a therapist? That's a really great question, especially because people get really scared. Like, are you exposing me to pedophilia? Like, no, that's not what we're doing. Like, I'm not having you Google child pornography. Like, that's not at all what we're doing with these kind of exposures. A, I look at what is values-based. And I always start with clients by asking the question of what are you avoiding because of your OCD? And that immediately goes on a person's exposure hierarchy. It's likely I'm avoiding bathing my child. I'm avoiding changing my baby's diaper. I'm avoiding watching this little kid TV show with my child because I'm afraid that I'll have a thought or a groinal response to the kid on the TV. So we start there. And then if, if we can do exposures in session, like if it's not, let's say I'm in my office and the baby's not there to change the diaper, then we'll do other kinds of exposures. It might be just like looking at a picture of you with your baby and practicing that mindfulness of if these thoughts arise, I'm going to let them be here while I'm looking at a picture of my baby. It could be going to dinner with your dad. If you're really afraid of having those unwanted intrusive thoughts about fucking your dad. Um, So it typically is like something values-based and something that's going to be in service of the clients. It's we're not doing anything illegal. Is it often paired with talk therapy or does that become problematic? So talk therapy is, it tends to be contraindicated for OCD because what tends to happen is the therapist just starts to compulse with the client in the office all day. Like, let's look at these thoughts. Let's find meaning in them. Let's figure out why you're having them. But there is talking involved with exposure therapy. Like I'll typically ask my clients, what did you learn from that exposure? Because that's one of the things that can happen with exposure and response prevention is is something called inhibitory learning. Oh, I learned that I could change my baby's diaper over and over again this week and like nothing happened. What if I snap and do X, Y, and Z? Like that didn't happen at all. Or I had dinner with my dad and like I really tuned into how much I love my dad and how much I don't want to have sex with him. So I'll say, what did you learn? What was difficult about that? Were you able to be mindful? Did you perform compulsions? That's kind of the talking that we do, but it's not like, let's analyze your obsessions and find the meaning within them. And how do you choose where to start? At what point, like maybe something's too distressing for for somebody. So how do you uh, choose which obsession to start with? How small to start? And how do you move up? That's a great question. So a lot of the times clients will have like various obsessions. Sometimes people only have one. And for me, it was really just like sexual obsessions about literally anyone. But If a client has multiple obsessions, I'll say, what is the most impairing to your life right now? If they have existential obsessions and they also have postpartum obsessions and they just had their baby, maybe we're going to focus on postpartum first and then get to the existential. So what is most impairing? And then in terms of like building a hierarchy, if zero is absolutely no anxiety and 10 is like the most anxiety you've ever experienced in your life, I typically start with clients at around a level three to four. So it might be something like just writing down the word pedophile or writing down the words Jeffrey Dahmer, if that keeps popping into your mind. It could be looking at a cartoon picture of a baby, looking at a cartoon photo of a knife, things that are much less anxiety provoking so that learning can take place and so that the client can build confidence in their ability 
to do these exposures and to tolerate discomforts. That makes sense. So for our listeners, we talked about a variety of taboo um, subtypes of OCD. If we did not mention it here, does it mean that they're a bad person? Does it mean they're the only ones who experience it? And what can they expect? No, of course not. Like we can have unwanted thoughts about literally anything. If we didn't talk about it here, because I just can't talk about everything, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And the thing I'll add to that is like, if your intrusive thoughts don't come in the form of what if, like they might come in the form of commands, like rape them, stab them, finger your child. That's also really common. So I don't want you to think like, well, I don't have the, what if I'm a bad person thoughts. I have the like, do it thoughts, even though I don't want to, that doesn't make you bad either. We can have thoughts in any form that we dislike, and it doesn't make you bad. It just makes you a human with a brain that is more hyperactive than most. I go back to what you said at the beginning, that these thoughts and these intrusions are ego dystonic, mm-hmm. meaning that you don't want them. You're not interested in them. They don't speak anything to your values. They go against everything you are. Right. And that's why like people with OCD, they hate these thoughts so much that they quite literally avoid being around these subjects of these thoughts. So I'll I'll always have the occasional person on Instagram that tells me that I'm like promoting pedophilia. And it's the exact opposite of that. These people are so afraid of their own brain that they are locking themselves in their room and they are making their partner take care of their child. Like that's how scared they are. And that's how much they want to keep their child safe. This is not a perverse person who enjoys doing these things. A pedophile is worried about getting caught. Mm. They're not locking themselves in another room. So scared of what's happening in their brain saying, I don't enjoy these thoughts. Massive difference. So glad you brought that up because that was actually something Natty and I were discussing before the episode because I've seen it on your page. I've seen it on other pages that promote um, OCD awareness. And so there's always somebody in the comments saying something like, I cannot believe I'm unfollowing you. I can't believe you're promoting. (laughs) Every fucking day. Yes. So it's really, I'm, I'm really happy because I was ask, actually going to ask you, what do you say to them? And I think you answered the question beautifully. Like, yeah, this is not that in the same way that like, and it, it's so fucked up because I think that people naturally have more like empathy and understanding when it even comes to like postpartum, right? Like if someone is saying right. like, I have these, and again, there's still not enough understanding about postpartum OCD. So I don't want to act like there is, but like we can tend to, oh yes, a lot of new moms have a violent thought about their child. But then if it's like, you know, the 35 year old woman that starts getting unwanted sexual thoughts about kids, like you must be a predator. So it's, it's ridiculous. And like, I've gotten reported, like someone reported me to New York crime stoppers. I was like, what? <laughs> like, Are you yeah. And it's, oh. no, I'm like, I'm dead ass. Yeah. And like my, my account is like shadow banned all the fucking time. It's so it's whatever it is, what it is. But a lot of people, like, I don't know, it just can't comprehend that this is what that is and that it's not pedophilia. And it's pretty fucked up, especially when I've spent hours creating this carousel that like lines it out for you. Like, babe, just go to Google, just like type it in and like your answer is right there. But I think that's why your work is so important. And even the way you talk about things, you don't sugarcoat, you're not scared to say Never. Certain- it kind of is just blunt and is what it is. Mm-hmm. I think that's the direction we need to continue going in to get less. And it took me a while to get notes. here. Yeah. So I don't want people to think like, oh my God, I should be speaking this openly about my OCD. Like it, it took me years to get to this place and I still get scared. Um, not necessarily about like Instagram, but like if I write a book one day, like obviously like 
I do fear people's judgment to a certain degree, but we have to speak candidly about this because if I don't, then my clients aren't going to be able to. If I don't, then people aren't going to understand that this actually is OCD. Like there's no way to beat around the bush of what the experience of OCD is like. And the more that we do that, the more that our clients suffer. Yeah. And I'm so glad to have you here and to have you speak out this openly. And you have two supporters here that if anyone tried to come after you after writing a book, we are going to cheer you on. Uh, this you. Is so important. I think we do need more books. We do yeah. need more education. We love that you've worked your way up to, to being able to be so open about it. It's not easy, even though you're a therapist, to be able to speak so openly about the types of intrusive thoughts that you've experienced and your treatment and your journey, and then to come full circle and become a therapist for people that are struggling with the same thing. I think your clients are so lucky to have you Thank to be you. able to sit there and like be like, she gets me, you know, she yeah. gets me. Any last words for our listeners, any last tips or words of encouragement that you want to leave them with? I would say like, while there's not a cure, quote unquote, for OCD, you can get to a place of recovery and you can get to a place where you don't meet diagnostic criteria for OCD. It doesn't mean that I don't get intrusive thoughts. They still get them daily. It doesn't mean that I don't ever feel anxious or that I don't perform the occasional compulsion, but you can get to a place where like you actually don't meet criteria. These things are not taking up an hour of your day. So just because a cure doesn't exist and you might have a lapse throughout the lifespan, like I've had lapses, it doesn't mean that you can't get to a phenomenal place in your recovery and have a life that is so much better than you imagine it could be. I love that. So closing out the the episode, dear mind, these thoughts are part of OCD and anxiety. And there are people out there like me, I'm not a bad person and I will get the help and support that I need. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and family and remember to leave us a review. We love reading your comments. Take a screenshot of the episode you're listening to along with your thoughts and share it to your story and tag us so we can reshare it to our story. And be sure to follow us on social media at mind.fully.healing on Instagram at mindfullyhealing on YouTube and on TikTok at mindfully.healing. Until next time. Thank you.